Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. ISIS sex slave tells all. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and your terrorist therapist. Yes, today we're going to be hearing um, out of the mouths of uh, an actual ISIS sex slave who fortunately escaped and recently won the Nobel Prize, which is why we're talking about her today. Her name is Nadia Murad, and her story is amazing. I'm gonna be reading an excerpt from her story, from her book, actually, um, that was published, uh, that it's a memoir, and it's called The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity, and my fight against the Islamic State. But before I read you the excerpt, I wanna tell you a little bit about who she is, what she's doing now, why we should care, besides the fact that we should obviously be impressed because she won the Nobel Prize. Uh, Nadia Murad was born in the village of Koho in the Sinjar district of Northern Iraq. Her family, which is of the Yazidi ethno-religious minority, were farmers. Now, let me tell you about uh, the Yazidis. They are a Kurdish-speaking community, a minority, religious minority, and they follow an ancient religion where they revere a single god and the leader of the angels is represented by a peacock. There were around 550,000 of them in Iraq before 2014, in other words, before ISIS established its caliphate. But some 100,000 have since left the country. And then, of course, there have been untold uh, numbers that have been killed by ISIS. So um, Nadia was born into this family of farmers and at the age of 19, she's 25 now, at the age of 19, she was a student living in the village of Koho, her, her, where she was born, um, when the Islamic State fighters rounded up the Yazidi community in her village, killing 600 people, including six of Nadia's brothers and stepbrothers, and taking the younger women into slavery. She also lost her mother during this um, attack of ISIS. They murdered as many men as they could and any women they considered too old to be sold as sex slaves. So the women, <laughs> the women uh, were given a choice. I mean, they made the decision. You were either, if you were a woman, you were either, if you were too old to be sold as a sex slave, uh, you were killed. And if you weren't killed, you were sold as a sex slave. Either way, it wasn't good for Yazidi women. Um, she, um, she, so she, in, in that year, 2014, she became one of more than 6,700 Yazidi women 
taken prisoner by the Islamic State in Iraq. 6,700 Yazidi women taken as prisoners. She was captured in August 2014. She was held as a slave in the city of Mosul. She was beaten, burned with cigarettes, raped, gang raped, and she, until she finally was able to escape. Um, she escaped when her captor left the house unlocked one day, and she was taken in by a neighboring family who smuggled her out of the Islamic State-controlled area. She made her way to a refugee camp in northern Iraq, and she was, um, you know, out of ISIS territory at that point in around November 2014. And then um, she, she lives currently in Germany. She was uh, eventually um, included with a thousand other women, sex slaves um, and children who were allowed to go into Germany, who were, you know, admitted, um, accepted into Germany. Now, um, let me tell you about the, the Nobel Peace Prize before I get into um, her, her story, more of her story. The reason why, I mean, first of all, the, the, she has founded this organization called Nadia's Initiative, and I'll tell you about that. And she's, in other words, since she was, uh, since she was freed, uh, since she escaped, she, she didn't, you know, this is, this is why she won the Peace Prize, because since she escaped, um, she didn't just sit on her laurels and say, thank goodness I'm out, and um, that was really sad and tragic, and it was a nightmare and so on, but she's doing something. She is an activist. She is trying to help all the other women and children who were taken as sex slaves. Um, so the Nobel, the people who make the decision for the Nobel Peace Prize uh, chose her because, quote, she has shown uncommon courage in recounting her own sufferings and speaking up on behalf of the other victims. She's one of an estimated 3,000 Yazidi girls and women who were victims of rape and other abuses by the ISIS army. Now that's interesting because there are different numbers. I mean, you know, there's no way to know the exact, the numbers are so big that there's no way to know the exact numbers of Yazidi uh, girls and women, well, who were victims of rape and other abuses. Um, the other previous number I gave you was Yazidi women taken prisoner. Anyway, there are different reports of this because, because no one really knows. <laughs> there are too many and, and the country is just too, you know, there's nobody <laughs> doing a systematic counting. Uh, the Nobel Peace Prize decision makers went on to say, the abuses were systematic and part of a military strategy. They served as a weapon in the fight against Yazidis and other religious minorities. ISIS jihadists um, organized slave markets for selling off the women and girls, and Yazidi women were forced to renounce their religion. And for the jihadists, I mean, this is the thing, the jihadists have an ultra, what they call ultra strict interpretation of Islam. Really, it is a mis, uh, miscommunication, a misinterpretation of Islam in order to re, um, recruit people to become ISIS fighters. 
But in any case, the Yazidis are seen as heretics because they don't believe in the same kind of Islam as the ISIS um, members do. So, you know, they're trying, ISIS is trying to kill um, all the Yazidis, except for those women who they um, take as sex slaves. So um, the, the um, sex trafficking is not new. ISIS didn't invent it. It has been done before. Um, but ISIS is making good use of it as a weapon of war. They use sex trafficking in order to recruit people to become ISIS soldiers because they reward them or they hold the promise of rewarding them with sex slaves. And it's also a way that ISIS intimidates um, populations that they are trying to kill or capture or, you know, take over the land of and so on, like the Yazidis in northern Iraq. Because, um, you know, they, it's a way that they are, um, it's a way that they try to get them to uh, or intimidate them to not fight back or intimidate them to, to, to become ISIS terrorists uh, because of the threat of, of taking the women and killing the men and, you know, we're coming after you, in other words. Um, cities or towns that where ISIS uh, arrives know that this is what they're going to, going to be doing. It's really very intimate and personal and embarrassing especially for someone who comes from that culture where women are taught to be um, very modest, not show their body, certainly not talk about being raped. And she is very courageous in talking about her story, uh, writing a book about her story in the way that she does, um, you know, very, um, very detailed shall we say. Um, well, you'll see for yourself in a minute. And um, she, she's doing all of this because at, although she was able to um, escape from, from her captivity as a sex slave, um, she is now becoming a global voice campaigning for justice for her people and um, against the acts committed by the jihadists, she wants them that to be recognized internationally as genocide. And she is the youngest, she's 25, and she's the youngest, second youngest, Nobel Peace Prize winner. The youngest was Malala Yousafzai, um, who won the 2014 prize when she was 17. And as you'll remember, Malala, was um, shot in the head uh, by the Taliban for campaigning for girls' education in Pakistan, where she grew up. So um, Nadia is uh, the the excerpt that I'm going to read to you um, is a part of her story where she talks about being held in Mosul as a sex slave. Um, that was the capital that ISIS made that the capital of their caliphate. She was beaten, burned with cigarettes, gang raped. Um, she was like thousands of Yazidis. She was forcibly married. She was made to convert to Islam, the Islam that the terrorists uh, believe in, and wear makeup and tight clothes. And um, 
she escaped, as I was saying, after her captor left the house door unlocked. This was about after three months or so. Um, taken in by a family who helped her escape. And then when she was in one of the refugee camps, she learned the fate of her family, that her brothers and stepbrothers and mother were killed by ISIS terrorists. And she lived in refugee camps until the government of Baden-Württemberg offered her asylum in Germany with a thousand other women and children. She was one of the lucky ones who was able to get asylum. She's won all kinds of awards. I'll tell you about that. You know, like uh, the EU's, the European Union's uh, Sakharov Human Rights Prize and the Council of Europe's, um, all, the, all these names are so hard to pronounce, Vaclav Havel Human Rights Prize. She also became the first goodwill ambassador for the dignity of survivors of human trafficking of the United Nations. And um, she just... Before I get to her book, there's like kind of a happy end to the story, well, relatively happy end to the story. Um, she just announced in August her engagement to a fellow Yazidi activist named Abid Shamdeen. And she said, the struggle of our people brought us together and we will continue this path together. So, um, you know, that it's, it's really, that in itself is a, was a challenge, was an accomplishment, <laughs> not any less of a challenge than winning the Nobel Peace Prize, because when a woman is um, a, a sex slave, captured, trafficked, captured, you know, first of all, uh, undergoing the trauma of having terrorists invade your village, kill your family, take you and your sisters as sex slaves, um, raped and so on, um, it is incredibly difficult to form a relationship with a man because of all of that trauma. So, um, so that in itself was a challenge. Let me read to you um, some, an excerpt from her story, from her book called The Last Girl, My Story of, of Captivity and My Fight Against the Islamic State. Um, okay, she wrote, the slave market opened at night. We could hear the commotion downstairs where militants were registering and organizing. And when the first man entered the room, all the girls started screaming. It was like the scene of an explosion. We moaned as though wounded, doubling over and vomiting on the floor. But none of it stopped the militants. They paced around the room, staring at us while we screamed and begged. They gravitated toward the most beautiful girls first asking, how old are you? And examining their hair and mouths. They are virgins, right? They asked a guard who nodded and said, of course, like a shopkeeper taking pride in his product. Now the militants touched us anywhere they wanted, running their hands over our breasts and our legs as if we were animals. It was chaos while the militants paced the room, scanning girls and asking questions in Arabic or the Turkmen language. Calm down, militants kept shouting at us, be quiet. But their orders only made us scream louder. If it was inevitable that a militant would take me, I wouldn't make it easy for him. I howled and screamed, slapping away hands that reached out to grope me. Other girls were doing the same, curling their bodies into balls on the floor or throwing themselves across their sisters and friends to try to protect them. 
While I lay there, another militant stopped in front of us. He was a high-ranking militant named Salwan, who had come with another girl, another Yazidi from Hardan. We planned to drop off at the house while he shot for her replacement. Stand up, he said. When I didn't, he kicked me. You, the girl with the pink jacket. I said, stand up. His eyes were sunk deep into the flesh of his wide face, which seemed to be nearly entirely covered in hair. He didn't look like a man, he looked like a monster. Attacking Sinjar and taking girls to use as sex slaves wasn't a spontaneous decision made on the battlefield by a greedy soldier. Islamic State planned it all, how they would come into our homes, what made a girl more or less valuable, which militants deserved a sabaya, sex, which means a sex slave, as incentive, and which should pay. They even discussed sabaya in their glossy propaganda magazine, Dabik, in an attempt to draw new recruits. But ISIS is not as original as its members think it is. Rape has been used throughout history as a weapon of war. I never thought I would have something in common with women in Rwanda before all this. I didn't know that a country called Rwanda existed, and now I am linked to them in the worst possible way as a victim of a war crime that is so hard to talk about that no one in the world was prosecuted for committing it until just 16 years before ISIS came to Sinjar. On the lower floor, a militant was registering the transactions in a book writing down our names and the names of the militants who took us. I thought about being taken by Salwan, how strong he looked and how easily he would crush me with his bare hands. No matter what he did and no matter how much I resisted, I would never be able to fight him off. He smelled of rotten eggs and cologne. I was looking at the floor, at the feet and ankles of the militants and girls who walked by me. In the crowd, I saw a pair of men's sandals and ankles that were skinny, almost womanly. And before I could think about what I was doing, I flung myself toward those feet. I started begging, please take me with you, I said. Do whatever you want. I just can't go with this giant. I don't know why the thin guy agreed, but taking one look at me, he turned to Salwan and said, she's mine. Salwan didn't argue. Now let's see whether that was a good decision. Okay, so um, she said to this man with the skinny feet, please take me with you. I said, do whatever you want. I just can't go with this giant. I don't know why the thin guy agreed, but taking one look at me, he turned to Salwan and said, she's mine. Just wanted to take you back to where we left off. Uh, Salwan didn't argue. The skinny man was a judge in Mosul and no one disobeyed him. I followed the thin man to the desk. What's your name? He asked me. He spoke in a soft but unkind voice. Nadia, I said, and he turned to the registrar. The man seemed to recognize the militant right away and began recording our information. He said our names as he wrote them down. Nadia, Haji Salman. And when he spoke the name of my captor, I thought I heard his voice waver a bit as if he were scared. And I wondered if I had made a huge mistake. In November 
2015, a year and three months after ISIS came to my hometown of Kacho, Kacho, I left Germany for Switzerland to speak to a UN forum on minority issues. It was the first time I would tell my story in front of a large audience. I wanted to talk about everything, the children who died of dehydration fleeing ISIS, the families still stranded on the mountain, the thousands of women and children who remained in captivity, and what my brothers saw at the site of the massacre. I was only one of hundreds of thousands of the Azidi victims. My community was scattered, living as refugees inside and outside of Iraq, and Koho was still occupied by ISIS. There was so much the world needed to hear about what was happening to Yazidis. I wanted to tell them that so much more needed to be done. We needed to establish a safe zone for religious minorities in Iraq, to prosecute ISIS from the leaders down to the citizens who had supported their atrocities, for genocide and crimes against humanity, and to liberate all of Sinjar. I would have to tell the audience about Haji Salman, and the times he raped me, and all the abuse I witnessed. Deciding to be honest was one of the hardest decisions I have ever made, and also the most important. I shook as I read my speech. As calmly as I could, I talked about how Coho had been taken over, and girls like me had been taken as Sabaya. I told them how I had been raped and beaten repeatedly, and how I eventually escaped, I told them about my brothers who had been killed. It never gets easier to tell your story. Each time you speak, you relive it. When I tell someone about the checkpoint where the men raped me, or the feeling of Haji Salman's whip across the blanket as I lay under it, or the darkening Mosul sky while I search the neighborhood for some sign of help, I am transported back to those moments and all their terror. Other Yazidis are pulled back into these memories too. My story, told honestly and matter-of-factly, is the best weapon I have against terrorism, and I plan on using it until those terrorists are put on trial. There is still so much that needs to be done. World leaders, and particularly Muslim religious leaders, need to stand up and protect the oppressed. I gave my brief address when I finished telling my story, I continued to talk. I told them I wasn't raised to give speeches. I told them that every Yazidi wants ISIS prosecuted for genocide and that it was in their power to help protect vulnerable people all over the world. I told them that I wanted to look the men who raped me in the eye and see them brought to justice. More than anything else, I want to be the last girl in the world with a story like mine. Of course, that's where she got the title, The Last Girl, <laughs> My Story of Captivity and My Fight Against uh, Islam the Islamic State. Um, that, um, that is an excerpt from her book. Of course, uh, <laughs> clearly it makes you want to read the whole book, as it does me. Um, she, uh, she's the founder, so what she has done is um, you know, having been rescued, uh, she is, or having escaped, you know, she, she escaped and, and she rescued herself, basically, as well as then found people to help her 
um, get from the place where she was being held in captivity as a sex slave to ultimately Germany, where she lives now. She's the founder of something called Nadia's Initiative, which is an organization dedicated to, quote, helping women and children victimized by genocide, mass atrocities, and human trafficking to heal and rebuild their lives and communities. Now, she's getting some help in all of these different speeches and, and at the UN and so on by Amal Clooney. So in September 2016, Amal Clooney spoke before the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime to discuss the fact that she had decided in June 2016 to represent Murad. You know, Amal Clooney is an attorney, and specifically she works in things like uh, human trafficking and, um, you know, she works to help people who have been captive, just like um, Nadia. So this is a perfect case for her to work on. So she's representing Nadia as a client in a legal action against ISIS commanders. And um, she called Clooney, Amal, called this genocide, rape, and trafficking by ISIS or ISIL as a, quote, bureaucracy of evil on an industrial scale, a slave market existing online on Facebook and in the Mideast that's still active today. And um, Nadia, by the way, even though she's in Germany, or uh, I mean, of course, Germany has, has admitted a lot of immigrants who are, um, where there are undercover terrorists, I mean, obviously not the thousand women and children who they took um, from Iraq along with Nadia, but um, Germany is not such a safe place to be, and she has received serious threats at, to her safety, three serious threats to her life um, because of her work. You know, in other words, she could have just stayed in Germany and um, been safe and tried to make a new life for herself instead of writing this book, which of course makes her a target and even more so doing, um, founding Nadia's initiative. And they, Nadia's initiative describes themselves, you know, describes their mission as uh, an organization aimed at increasing advocacy for women and minorities and assisting them to stabilize and redevelop communities in crisis. Um, presently, the team is embarking on efforts to establish meaningful and sustainable programming in the Sinjar re region of Iraq through the Sinjar Action Fund. And um, since the invasion of the so-called Islamic State in 2014, the Sinjar region, you know, which is where Nadi, Nadi was from, has struggled to ensure the safety and livelihood of the primarily Yazidi population, which is now displaced throughout the country. Now, um, unfortunately, this um, cause, uh, has been given very little public assistance, and therefore Nadia's initiative is trying to establish short and long-term programming to develop or redevelop Sinjar, which is the ancient homeland of the, of the Yazidi people. And they've made a number of uh, advances, like um, in September of 2017, the UN Security Council made a resolution 
they approved an unprecedented, unprecedented resolution to open an investigation into the war crimes committed by ISIS against the Yazidi people. Uh, there's also recognition of genocide. She has been lobbying um, states and countries to recognize the Yazidi genocide, to rec in other words, to recognize it as a genocide, not just as uh, a minor part of what ISIS terrorists are doing. And she has made, she's gotten lots of countries and parliaments and so on to sign on to this, uh, including the U.S. House of Representatives, but also places in, in Europe and um, the United Nations Independent International Commission and so on. And she's also, her, the Nadia's initiative has also made progress um, in breaking the stigma of survivors worldwide. She's been appointed as the first goodwill ambassador for the dignity of survivors of human tra trafficking by the UN. So in other words, by Nadia speaking out, both in her speeches and in her book, um, and telling her personal intimate story, this is, she is leading um, other women and other people who have been trafficked, um, women and children who have been trafficked, families, to speak out as well, even though the, the, the things that have happened to them are incredible atrocities. So please check out Nadia's initiative, do what you can to help them. And um, of course, <laughs> and buy her book because it's a, you know, I've just read you a small uh, excerpt from it, but obviously uh, this is a very, a very captivating, shall we say, story and true story and something that should make us all want to do something to help. So thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your Terrorist Therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your Terrorist Therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.